Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. On today's show, we have Dan Oates. He is the coordinator of the Space Camp program for the vision impaired students. He's also a teacher in the West Virginia School for the Blind. Hello, Dan, and welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm good, Aaron. How are you? Uh, I'm pretty good now. Thank you for coming on to the show, man. No worries. Where did this all start for you, Dan? When did you discover teaching people with vision impairments? Well, it was something my mother always wanted to do or wanted me to do because I was uh, I grew up within a couple blocks of the School for the Blind. And uh, she worked there as the superintendent's uh, administrative assistant. And she had always wanted me to um, work there. But uh, I had never really been interested at all. And I uh, had a career planned in recreational management and had gone to college and got my degree and everything and was gainfully employed until the job ran out and then mom passed away and dad died and I find, or my mom passed away and dad had a heart attack and I find myself back home without a job and the school called up here and wanted to know if I could teach arts and crafts and I said well it's sort of what I've been doing and uh, I went up on a part-time basis and they liked me and they offered me a um, uh, master's in education if I would go back and become certified in orientation and mobility or in, uh, in independent travel for the blind. And I said, sure, I would love to do that. So my career was born. My mother finally got her way. How did that feel for you of teaching in that, in that school after your parents had passed away? Well, I mean, it was, it was, dad was still alive, but, um, you know, mom, um, 
mom had always wanted me to work there, and uh, she was willing to die to do it, I guess, because she wasn't here to take care of dad after the heart attack, so I had to come home and do that, and uh, I needed to do something to make a living, and uh, what I was doing wasn't working, and this job offer came up, so I just always, I didn't think I would enjoy it, I didn't think I would enjoy the kids because, you know, I didn't understand them, obviously, it was out of ignorance that I didn't want to work there. And after going to school and becoming educated and in the ways of the blind and the visually impaired, then I came back to school with a renewed interest of working with those kids. Did you enjoy doing arts and crafts? Well, it was a living. I was a chair caner. I don't know if you guys, what you call that in uh, Ireland or in the UK. It's uh, a lot of times they call it chair bottoming, putting the seats in antique chairs that need to be woven. So I... um, did that uh, to make a living and it was just something I did and I still do and when you became a mobility teacher what was that like well I mean it was uh, initially it was very new to me and um, I had to you know, learn I spent uh, a lot of my master's work under blindfold up in Pittsburgh Pennsylvania traveling the streets with my instructor learning to navigate uh, as best I could in a situation that, that way and then came back home and uh, sort of there was a mobility instructor here that had about 20 years experience so I hung on his coattails for quite a while just to figure out the ins and outs of it and um, I did it for 14 years so it was very very interesting I still did a little bit of it not not as much as I did when I worked full time but I do contract occasionally uh, and teach now that I'm retired how did it feel like walking around blindfolded that someone could see? <laughs> well, it certainly put the shoe on the other foot. So, um, you know, it was a little scary at first. And, uh, you know, I, I always say, you know, when people say, oh, that's amazing, you did that. And I go, no, no not really, because I can take my blindfold off at any time. And someone who's blind doesn't have that Um that's that freedom to just, oh, okay, I'm not going to be blind anymore. And uh, it's, it's not as people think it's a brave thing to do, but it's really not because we can we have a visual memory and um, people who are blind sometimes don't. And uh, we navigate very well based on our visual memory and experiences. And, and blind people don't have that. Uh, sometimes they don't have that freedom if they're born blind. Through that ex- experience, what did you learn to enhance your teaching? Everything. There wasn't anything. I mean, the entire experience was something that I had to have before I could um, begin to teach. Uh, I mean, every. I mean, the whole purpose was to go under blindfold, and then everything was uh, a part of that. So um, it, it, you can't really separate what you learned because you, you learned everything about it for someone who had never had that experience before. And after completing your, your master's, what did you do after that? Well, I returned to the school for the deaf and the blind here in West Virginia and uh, stayed uh, stayed here for 30 years. And I'm still, you know, two blocks away. And um, I still was up at school yesterday and um, the kids still go to space camp and I still keep that uh, connection and then... Um, I still contract some low vision services up there and some orientation and mobility services. So I'm still connected to the school. Tell us about how you got Space Camp uh, program up and running. 
Well, uh, contrary to what a lot of people think, I really didn't get it up and running. Um, the founder of Space Camp, a guy by the name of Edward Buckby, was he founded Space Camp along with Dr. Werner von Braun, the German scientist that came to America after World War II and began our rocket program here. Edward Buckby grew up in the same town that I live in, in West Virginia, Romney, West Virginia. And as a result of knowing that the School for the Blind in West Virginia was here, when it became apparent that uh, facilities like the U.S. Space and Rocket Center and Space Camp had to start offering programming to um, people with special needs, uh, he called back home to his hometown where the school was and talked to the superintendent about bringing some kids down who were blind or visually impaired. And the superintendent was very interested in it because he was interested in new and innovative programming. And uh, he was, uh, they started a dialogue between the school and space camp, and that was in 1988. And then um, there were some trips from uh, West Virginia down to Alabama, which is about a 12-hour drive. And um, our superintendent and principal and a committee uh, went down, of which I was not a part of. And uh, they started talking about the adaptations needed and what we would do when we got there and you know, on and on and on, so I started building the program. Um, meanwhile, I'm back here in Romney, West Virginia, teaching mobility, as I was told that I would do once I got out of school. So this was, I guess this was about 10 years after I got out of my master's program. So I was very happy to be doing what I do, but at the same time, I was had always heard about Space Camp. It was, it was founded in 1982, and I was already 30 years old, so I really couldn't attend as a child. But I thought it would be cool to go down and uh, do all that because um, the space and the space program was always a big part of our, my childhood. I can remember sitting on the living room floor and watching, you know, the launches and the man walk, Neil Armstrong walk on the moon. So as the project became more and more apparent that we were going to be going to Huntsville, I um, sort of stuck my name in the hat, hoping that I would get to go and. My principal included me in on the meetings simply because I was a mobility instructor and they thought that might be a valuable asset to the team, but that I would not be going to space camp with the kids when they decided to go. So he made one more trip down with the committee and when he came back, he called me into his office and he says, I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to change my mind. And I said, about what? And he says, well, I'm gonna ha you're going to have to go to space camp now because he says the, um, the layout of the place is such that if we don't have a mobility instructor there to assist with the independent travel of the kids, then it's just not going to be successful. So I got to go on the first uh, trip in 1990 with uh, 20 kids from our school, and um, that was my first trip to space camp. What did you feel going with these group of children to space camp the first time? Well, it was, uh, first of all, it was a two-day school bus ride. We didn't fly. We drove. It was um, quite um, <laughs> quite painful to be on the school bus for two days with 20 kids, but it was fun, and we had a good time on the way down and very tiring on the trip on the way back. But um, we, were, we were committed to the program that first year, and uh, the kids were very excited to be, we called them visually impaired pioneers because they were the first group of kids who were uh, blind or visually impaired to go through a space camp program. And um, 
we wanted we were there to prove a few things first first of all we were there to prove that it could be done and that there would be no reason why a child who's blind or visually impaired can't go through the program as long as the materials are made available to them and things are adapted uh, for that and we had five staff members there along with the 20 kids and they were very much involved in every aspect of the program. It became um, also one of our goals was that we should um, have a commander who was totally blind because we wanted to prove uh, to people that blind people could accomplish the same goals as the sighted person. So that was another one of our uh, goals that we set forth that blind. When we left, we wanted them to know that blind people, blind kids can do the same thing as anyone else. So uh, the week went fine. It was uh, the kids did a great job. We did a space academy program, and um, kids had their missions and did a great job with that. And we had everything available in Braille that we needed, and large print, and um, proper magnification was needed. And uh, it was a big success. Everybody down at the Space and Rocket Center who had had no previous experience with blind or visually impaired students was. Uh, was quite excited about it. Was all those goals achieved um, after the first year of that program? Yes, I think we did. We we achieved everything we set out to, and uh, which you know helped pave the way for the um, the years after. When a person goes to a space camp today, they have all these brailles technology. When you guys were there the first and second year, was that there? Or was that kind of a progression of what we see today? Um, no, it was not there, Aaron. It was, uh, we had our Braille that we had brought with us, crates, and we probably had 10 crates of Braille that we had brought with us in large print. Um, that was basic, the only adaptation at that time that we had. And um, we had to have a, a, a blind, we wanted a blind commander and a sighted uh, pilot, a low vision pilot. So they can work together as a team. So if anything in the uh, in in the uh, orbiter was not properly labeled, then the low vision kid could help out the the commander. And that's pretty much how it works in space too. You know, no one's up there by themselves. Everyone assists. So we um, we got we got through it. Um, the technology grew as we grew, and the space camp grew as well. Because when we went the first year, they only had one orbiter and one mission control and I think now they're up to five or five capsules and or orbiters and um, five mission controls. At what stage did you become the coordinator of the program then? Well, let's see, the first year, probably the first three years, I was a, a, a chaperone. I was very uh, interested in the program, what was going on. Um, I was still teaching mobility at the time um, during all of this and uh, I, I just kept watching the, the first year was our kids from our school the uh, second year our superintendent decided that it would be neat if we could get um, some other schools uh, for the blind interested and uh, he had sent he sent two of our teachers our science and math teachers out on a road trip uh, basically around the uh, east coast of the United States visiting schools for the blind and presenting on space camp to see if he could get other schools interested. So at the end of that uh, trip, we had three more schools sign up. Um, I think it was like maybe Florida, Ohio, Virginia, some, something along that line. And then um, 
The same thing happened the next year. We had four more schools come. So we had grown from our original 20 kids up to about 40 kids. And then the third year, we had eight residential schools attending. And uh, we were up to about 80, I think, well, 75 kids total. And uh, it was good. I mean, the residential school population at the time in the U.S. was, was sufficient enough to maintain um, a, a group of kids who could attend and achieve success at space camp. Um, the fourth year, my career as a mobility instructor ended and I began working in the outreach office, which is basically an educational consultant position for the school. I traveled a lot out into the state and uh, met with families and students and provided consultative services for um, blind and visually impaired kids in our whole state. And at that time, I was able to reach more kids and start talking to them about the experiences of space camp. And at that point in time, if you weren't in a residential school, then you really didn't have a way to attend the program. So I started pushing hard for kids to go from a, from a public school uh, population. And I met with some resistance, but kept pushing and finally... The fourth year, we started accepting kids who wanted to come who didn't necessarily attend a residential school and just had heard about the program. And then um, every year, all the outreach officers from all the schools for the blind get together for an outreach forum. So I was uh, asked to come to Indiana and present and uh, on space camp and started getting a lot of positive comments on the program and how they would like to be involved and all of that. So then at that point in time, I thought, wow, um, maybe this is something if I had my hands on it more, then I could uh, make it grow more. I have the contacts. I'm traveling all over the United States, and um, and I can talk to more and more people about it. I started getting invited to conferences. So we created a sort of a co-coordinator. I handled all the um basically the enrollment, the recruiting, that kind of thing in my spare time. And then another teacher at school by the name of Kathy Johnson um, handled the materials and um, all the all, all the educational uh, components of the program. I was reading that the Space Camp program was a math and science. Was that your original idea or plan, or did you want to make it just space? Well, Space Camp is about math and science. That's uh, STEM. I guess I guess you guys have STEM in Ireland and the UK. Uh, the science, technology, engineering, and math. Well, that's their big push. I mean, that's that's how they get kids interested in the program. But it, it became very apparent that blind kids, low vision kids, whoever, often, if they're not in a residential school, then they're then their interaction with peers is very, very limited. Um, they, they don't, you know, they don't get time to hang out with their, with their peers. They may be the only visually impaired kid in their school and their district. And if there are more than one, they may never get together to hang out and talk. Occurring in the background of all the math and science and STEM activities was this, uh, bonding of kids that, um, really enjoyed each other's company just because they had something in common. 
and they don't often get to share that um, that uh, that different ability that they all have about being blind or visually impaired. So it slowly grew from for me at least when I when I sell it. Um, now it, it's it is a math and science activity, um, but at the same time it provides a a time where a child who has a blindness or a visual impairment can come somewhere and hang out, relax, not have to answer questions, not have to be worried about using your cane because everybody else is using your cane. So now it's cool to use your cane. And uh, it's cool to wear your sunglasses. It's cool to use your telescope. It's, it's okay to do all that. And you don't have to explain yourself. And one kid a year ago referred to Space Campus Planet Blind because he says, I can come here and everybody's the same as me. And he says, it's very relaxing for me to be here because I don't have to explain myself to everybody. So that's sort of how I go about the program now is, is more on the... Um, more on the interaction with peers. And it, as far as I know, and, and maybe someone out there listening will tell me, but I think it's the largest gathering of blind or vision impaired kids in, in the world for an academic purpose. There's lots of uh, sport events out there um, that get hundreds and hundreds of kids. But for academia, I don't think there's a whole lot of activities where kids come from all over the world um, to participate. Are you glad that you're a part of this program here in Eros? Well, yeah. I mean, it's basically my life. I often think about what happens when I'm gone, who's going to take it over, because it is such a um, time-consuming activity um, to get it organized. I you know, start probably, you know, the month of November is sort of my downtime, but then December, uh, starting the grants have to be written for scholarships, and then you have to get online and redo all the forms and um, get those posted. And then the applications start rolling in for all of that. So then in the, in the spring, registration starts. And then in the summer, the registrations they get pretty quick. And then you get lots of emails from parents. And then in the fall, you do the program. And now that I'm home from the program for a week, I'm handling the financial end of it uh, to pay Space Camp 150 thousand dollars for everybody to come and, you know, collecting the money and getting the thank yous for all the grants and the organizations that help kids go. So it's a year-long, um, it's a year-long project for one week. And uh, you don't, I don't know if I'll ever find anybody who wants to commit to that amount of time for one week of, of a program. Is it a majority of you doing all this work, or do you have a team with you helping you go through this work? Well, the work itself away from camp is me. Um, when I get down to space camp, then I have a lot of people. Um, I have a team of people who provide uh, a lot of the support to the U.S. Space and Rocket Center. There's also a, a, a lady here in West Virginia that, works, um, I guess she starts January, February, uh, working on the uh, Braille production. If there's Braille production to be done for a new program or they've uh, rewritten a program or whatever, she begins producing the Braille back in January, February, and then works pretty much all the way through uh, till the time we go to do it. So um, 
the materials part I'm completely removed from. I don't do I don't do the braille uh, or the large print. That's all done by other people. Do you find that uh, people are more aware of going to space camp as a vision impaired user? Well. I guess I am. I guess I do feel that way. I, I, I actually find myself surprised now when someone says, oh, I didn't know you had a program like that uh, because it is so well known here in the U.S. Now, internationally, I certainly understand that uh, we're getting our name out there more now with, since we have a grant for international students to attend. But, um, yeah, I, I feel like most of the people here in the U.S. know about it. Our field of, of educators who are blind or visually impaired is, is limited. Uh, you know, we have a small, we always say we have a small community of educators. So the word gets spread there very easily. Um, there's still some states who don't participate, and I think that's simply because of the financial uh, part of it. But, um, I mean, I don't know, Last this year we had uh, 211 students, which is our biggest group that we've ever had, and uh, I don't know what our capacity is or I'm not sure I want to find out what our capacity is but uh, it's a pretty uh, pretty good group of pretty good group of kids can you explain to us your scholarship program to us yeah um, here in the US we have uh, Delta Gamma which is an international sorority uh, collegiate international sorority and their mission is basically um, twofold uh, mathematics and um, blindness and visual impairment. So they give us anywhere between you know five and ten thousand dollars a year, and then we split that up into small chunks and assist uh, scholarships um, people uh, or to students in the U.S. and Canada. Um, also, Northrop Grumman is a aerospace uh, corporation that provides support for kids based on a regional uh, level. Um, it has a lot to do where Northrop Grumman headquarters are located uh, in the world. So we can we can fund kids from um, like Chicago, the Florida coast, uh, the Washington, uh, the uh, Washington D.C., Baltimore area. I think Denver is a part of that. Los Angeles, California, Dallas, Texas, Australia, and the uh, U.K are all areas where um, they will fund kids not only tuition, like Delta Gamma, but also fund their air travel. Then uh, NOAA, which is the National Organization of Albinism and Hypopigmentation here in the U.S., serves uh, persons with albinism. I'm on their national board, so I get a lot of cooperation from NOAA. And we give uh, scholarships to kids for tuition in the U.S. and Canada every year who have albinism. And that's through application process, as the as is the, the Northrop Grumman and the Delta Gamma. And then the last scholarship that we've been getting is from the St. Louis Lighthouse for the Blind in St. Louis, Missouri, in the U.S. And it is a industrial facility, which is a not-for-profit, or not a non-profit. So any money they have left they turn around and pour that money into programs for students. And um, John Thompson is the uh, executive director of the Lighthouse, and he, he um, 
started bringing kids to space camp probably about 10 years ago. And he would, he started off with a small group and then that group became larger and larger to where he was bringing between 35 and 40 kids from the state of Missouri. So basically any student who's in Missouri uh, can come to space camp for free funded by the lighthouse. But it became very apparent that he, when he looked around Chavez and when we were doing it, he felt that there was so much more to be gained from that experience if there was international, more international students. I was getting some international students, like Ireland has been coming for years. But uh, he said, gosh, it would be neat if we could get more kids from international countries. So he took the time to um, do some research and he gives me $50,000 a year now to bring international students that differ culturally from our students in the St. Louis, Missouri area, the state of Missouri, and bring them into space camp to associate and become peers with his students from Missouri. Because he says, most of my students from Missouri will never travel the world. I'm gonna bring the world to them. And uh, that is an application process. The first year, we probably had 10 kids. The second year, we probably had uh, 18. And this year, uh, we had 24 kids funded, but we had 67 applicants. So it's become much more uh, popular worldwide for kids to apply. But we are looking for kids who are academic and that have the potential to be uh, inspired in an academic career to get into STEM, um, a STEM career. And uh, that also brings something culturally to our, our camp. And um, we've had, this year we had students, our first student from South Africa. Um, we had our first student from India and Belgium. And uh, they give a two minute presentation at opening ceremonies about who they are, where they're from, and um, what, how their culture impacts them. So uh, it's a learning experience for our students from the U.S. to even even hear the accent or someone speak in their native language, because uh, so many of our kids don't get that. So most of our kids that we fund are international. We did have some kids in the U.S. who were funded uh, because they were either um, recently adopted from we had, a, we had a student from uh, Thailand who was recently adopted. We had a girl from Sweden who both her parents were from Sweden and she is living in the U.S. and uh, being raised in a Swedish household. So we're able to make those uh, adjustments um, you know, to the granting process. The child doesn't have to be from an international country. But we're always interested in finding new uh, new countries to attend, uh, new students who bring something very unique uh, to our program, and uh, we're able to fund them tuition, airfare, completely fund uh, their trip, and in some cases we can find a chaperone. But our goal is more to find the student and not the teacher. What are the requirements to apply for the scholarship? Well, I mean, just like I said, we want someone who's academic, who's got the potential for a career in um, in a STEM field, um, or moving on to a, a, a college or a university program. 
And of course, they have to provide uh, they have to provide documentation that they truly are blind or visually impaired. So we need a, a ophthalmological exam or an optometric exam uh, copy. We need to know that they're enrolled in a in an educational program. And then there's some essays that they have to write um, based on the application to submit um, to us to us for us to review. What do you mean by STEM fields? STEM is um, science, technology, engineering, and math. So if they're interested in any of those areas, then um, it, it speaks to their interest in what Space Camp has to offer. And is there a after program after, let's just say, a student goes to Space Camp and they f- figure out they love math, science, and space, is there a, a continuing after that program or is that it for the individual? Well, um, we have kids that have come eight years in a row uh, in the U.S. here because they started off in grade four and they've come every year until they graduated from high school. Um, Space Camp is available for those kids in in grade four through six. Um, Then there is Space Academy for kids in grade uh, uh, seven through nine. And then there's Advanced Space Academy for students in grades 10 through 12. So you can keep going back and back and back. And then there's also a Top Gun fighter pilot program uh, located at Space Camp called Aviation Challenge, which occurs simultaneously as, as Space Camp does. And that's a that's more of a military kind of thing where you learn to fly uh, jets and, and simulators and go through maneuvers, uh, military maneuvers and that sort of thing. That's uh, some kids enjoy that more than they do the space program. The astronaut training is one thing, but they like the pilot training uh, more, and they can attend that. So there's certainly ample opportunity to keep coming back, although uh, I know the Lighthouse Grant is not is not uh, designed to have kids come back year after year after year. They need to find their own funding after the uh, after the first year. Can you give us an idea what happens f- um, from day one to day seven in space camp? <laughs> yeah. Um, day one is more of an orientation um, kind of day where kids are getting used to their surroundings and uh, moved into the, their, uh, it's called the habitat is where they live. And uh, they get used to their surroundings. They go in and um, meet the other kids on their team, do some team activities to get to know each other. There's an orientation, then there's the uh, opening ceremonies for the kids that we have everybody together and uh, go about um, learning about who's in camp and what uh, what countries are represented. Um, that's when the Lighthouse um, scholarship recipients do their presentation. Um, second day begins with uh, training, um, which uh, we find out your missions what your missions are about. You get the background on what simulator you're going to be involved with, whether it's going to be a space shuttle mission or it's going to be a lunar mission. You get, you get briefed on those. Um, you go into training um, for that mission, find out what your role is. Um, if you're going to be flight director, if you're going to be commander, if you're going to be station scientist, if you're going to be a mission specialist to do a, a spacewalk, a, extravehicular activity and EVA. So um, all that takes place at the same time. There's uh, the space simulators that are there, the uh, one-six chair, which gives you the feeling of walking in one-six gravity on the moon. 
the multi-axis trainer, which um, puts you in the center of a of a device that spins you around and lets you know what it's like to be in an uncontrolled spin. Um, Space Shock, which is a, uh, a lot of people have seen those at uh, amusement parks. It's a, it's a simulator that takes you from Earth up to about 150 feet in about three seconds and then drops you halfway back down. So there, there for a minute or a second, you're, uh, you're, a little, you're weightless and you're dropping and it gives you that feeling. Um, there's tours of the facilities, so you get to learn all about uh, what um, we have a Saturn V uh, rocket there. You get to learn about the Saturn V and how we got to the moon. Um, Mealtime is very popular because kids get uh, an international um, food uh, line where they uh, all the different countries that are represented uh, on the space station um, each day, like it'll be Belgium for lunch and Russian for dinner and um, France for the next lunch and the next day will be American. So kids get an international menu, which is very popular. Um, the Dance Academy kids can go scuba diving. We have a 24-foot tank there that they can uh, do that. Uh, we have a low ropes course, which is a leadership reaction course which allows the kids to work together as a team to achieve um, different uh, goals on the leadership reaction course. Uh, we also have a high ropes course, which is a 49-foot rock wall that the kids climb up, um, harnessed, and their team supports them. Uh, once they're on top of the tower, there's a 200-yard zip line that takes them, or 200-foot zip line, we take them uh, from the top of the tower down to the ground. And then we have a 32-foot pamper pole, which is basically a telephone pole that the kids climb and stand on top of after they've climbed it and then jump off the top. Of course, they're harnessed during all of that as well. During the week there as an observer, what do you see happening? I see a tremendous amount of growth, personally, and a lot of self-confidence and self-esteem from students who come in uh, with with a lack of all of that and probably never been put in the role of a leader before or even an active member of any team. And they come in not knowing anyone on the team and they leave becoming an integral part of a team and sometimes a leader and then sometimes a follower, which in many cases is just as important. And uh, working together for a common goal uh, maybe the first time they've ever talked to anybody that had a similar eye condition as they had. And it's, um, I, get, I get a lot of comments from kids. It's the best week of their life. Um, it's life changing. It uh, provides them a perspective of that they, want, or they aren't alone, um, that they, they, can do, they can do anything they're asked to do. Uh, given the support uh, from their team or from people, uh, there's nothing they can't accomplish, and they can't wait uh, to come come by. Um, I have a comment here from the girl in South Africa that says, the short amount of time I spent there molded and changed me so much that I'm astounded at the personal growth when I got back home. And that's just one week that they can accomplish that. Do you think that the Space Camp program is giving the individual an advocacy um, role as their development? Yeah, I mean, I think with, with advocacy, 
uh, from an individual. Before you can have that advocacy, you've got to have the self-esteem and the confidence to first of all know who you are, what you can accomplish, and then once you once you know that, then advocacy I think becomes so much easier. You know, I've never thought of that before, Aaron, but that's a that's a really good question. Because you don't find someone who is insecure and not confident in who they are being a good advocate. And so you gotta have one before you have the other, I think. And and space can't can provide that that confidence and that uh, building of self-esteem to be able to move towards advocacy. Has any of the students that attended the program gone on to work at NASA or anything similar to the space program? Yeah, we have we have people, uh, graduates that are actively involved in engineering. Um, uh, we've had students who have done internships with NASA. Um, there is a gentleman in... Um, Australia is a published astronomer who is assigned as graduates. So, uh, yeah, they're out there. They're out there. Do you assess the achievements of what the individual is going through when you had began at the very first of this program? No, no. I was, I was all wrapped up in the science and math component and really didn't even, really didn't even have a clue. So it was a matter of waiting. It, it, it slowly occurred to me over, a, I guess, probably a three-year, four-year period when other students started coming in from other schools and mixing with the kids. And, and that's, that's, you know, that's when you start comparing yourself as a, as a student to other students. I had one, one of my students come up to me um, during the early years, probably five or year five or year six or something. And she says, I was in this briefing on um, science and space. And the instructor asked a question concerning a chemical formula. And she said, everybody in that room, there's 12 kids in that room. And she said, everybody raised their hand but me. And she says, why didn't I know that answer? And I said, you know, Sarah, I, I don't, I don't know why you didn't know it, but and that's probably best answered by you. You know, thinking about, you know, how seriously you're taking your academics, academics in your science class back at school. But she says, well, that's not going to happen again. And you know, that's that once again, that's that looking around, seeing what other kids are doing, and deciding that hey, if they do that, I can do that too. And that becomes a, a self-confidence uh, builder right there. So it, it, it slowly occurred to me as I saw more and more kids come to the program. When you came back with your children to the, the school that you were teaching, what did you see afterwards? Um, I think once again, that uh, self-confidence um, that the kids had, I, I think they, they, took their, they took their academics more seriously because they could see uh, a relationship between sitting in class and also the real world. You know, like this is stuff that people use every day. Does it make sense to me sitting here in a classroom in West Virginia? But now that I've gone through space camp, it's, I, I can sort of connect this to what I need to do uh, in real life. And I, I think it's, it's, a, it's an eye-opening experience for the kids. 
I think uh, space camp is like a, a bubble where vision impairment doesn't matter, but when they leave that bubble, do you see anything different in the individual or the student that you have that you have seen before? Oh yeah, oh yeah. I get I get comments all the time from um, parents. I had one parent call me after camp a number of years ago, and um, the parent said, "What have you done to my daughter?" And I was like, "Oh my gosh, that's <laughs> a scary call." And um, she said, when she got off of the plane and walked towards me with her cane, she said, I could tell just from looking at her that there was a difference. And she said, I want to know how you did that. And uh, she said she was more erect as an as a individual. She had more confidence in her stride. She had a cane out in front of her and used her cane like I'd never seen her use it before. And I explained to the mother that it didn't have anything to do with me. It was everything about what space camp does, you know, how those, how the crew trainers, how the employees down there work with the kids to get them confident in who they are and provide those skills uh, that they need to, to have that confidence. The team that's around you in space camp now, when they finish, do they comment, like are there comments that say that we need to do A more or B more, or is it just the same uh, progression? No, we, we have a meeting at the end of the program. We have, with this year, we had 89 chaperones attend with the students. And those, those chaperones are employees of the School for the Blind or a district or a county school or something. Uh, they're all vision professionals. So they are very aware of what needs to be done at the end of the week. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, space camp, um, we have a, a closed-out meeting with the um, directors and people at space camp who run the program, and we go over a long list of stuff that we think should be improved or um, think that could be better, and I get most of that information from the chaperones who attend the meeting and uh, who attend the week. So, yeah, we're constantly striving to get better at what we do. What would the chaperones see um, on the program? And do they see the changes happening to the students as well? Do they comment on that? Oh, yeah. I think that's why they come back. I mean, we get chaperones who, I mean, the chaperones are truly the life of of space camp for, for my program. Because if I don't have chaperones, I don't have kids. And, and most of the people who, um, most of the people who are chaperones or do the organization, or their particular state or school or district do attend uh, the program. And then there's other, you know, dedicated individuals like your Anne-Marie Costello and that uh, Child Vision there in Ireland who works tirelessly getting the program put together for the kids in Ireland. And uh, without her, uh, the kids from Ireland wouldn't come. So, you know, there's all these people out there that make these things happen like Anne Marie and all the other chaperones. And uh, it's, uh, you know, a lot of people think it's all about me, but if I don't have chaperones bringing kids, then I don't have a program. Has there been any new programs to the to Space Camp? Well, we, we started off with, um, let's see, we started off in 1990 with Space Academy. We waited uh, three years and then we did Advanced Academy. Then we waited um, 
Gosh, we waited uh, another three years and we tried the Aviation Challenge, which is a Top Gun fighter pilot program, then, which was very quickly followed by um, Space Camp, which were the elementary age students. So by the year 2000, we were into all six different programs that um, involved, um, involved kids from grade four all the way through grade 12. Um, at, at that point, um, we didn't do anything new. The so space camp really hadn't developed anything new until uh, two years ago when space camp started a robotics program. So this year was our first year to do robotics. We used a very small group of um, individuals. Uh, we had 11 kids in the program, and um, they went they went through it. In good, in good order. Were they building robots or doing uh, robotic things on uh, aviation challenges, or what was what was it? Uh, they were there was a there was a robotics program with it. A lot of it is just programming, and it's, it's Lego robotics as well. Uh, they're doing um, they're working with that product um, to uh, to make the whole thing work. And do you feel that this is kind of the last program for Space Camp, or do you think more will be added in the future? Oh, there'll be more coming. Those those people don't don't sit around very long without uh, without coming up with something new. The, I think the big thing that's going to occur now uh, next in the, in their programming is, of course, the space shuttle has been retired, so um, we don't have to worry uh, or not worry, but. Uh, the space shuttle simulators will all be um, decommissioned, and those will no longer be available for the kids to use because why go to space camp for a space shuttle mission when there is no space shuttle? So they're going to be swapping those out with some of the newer um, simulators that are going to be forthcoming through private the private sector, and uh, they'll be doing new missions based on um, not Earth orbit, but uh, more on inter- International Space Station in Earth orbit and Mars and lunar missions in hopes that uh, that will be the next place that uh, man goes in, in its pursuit of space travel. Is that because of SpaceX and the discovery of Mars is indicating those? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they're trying to keep up with what goes on. But it just doesn't do them any good. They're going to, I think they're going to get people are going to lose interest if all they do is come to space camp and do a space shuttle um, mission because there is no space shuttle anymore and that's something that needs to uh, improve and that's what that's what they'll do they'll, they'll keep improving in your in your own role as the coordinator of space camp Dan where do you think you will go after like what's your future in space camp well I mean I'm, I'm not the coordinator I'm, I'm the coordinator of Saga. I just don't want anybody to think that I'm the coordinator of Space Camp. <laughs> space Camp, Space Camp goes on 52 weeks a year, and I'm there for one 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 week during during Sabbath. So I'm I'm very proud of the fact that I do um, I do Sabbath, and um, it's it's a great program. But don't confuse me as someone important because I have the one uh, I have the one week there. Um, since I've retired, I do manage the, um, I work at Space Camp uh, May, June, July, and part of August as a manager for the, uh, for the program for educators. So I do a 
Space Camp Educator Program um, for teachers now. You know, the program is basically designed by Space Camp, and um, it's also a lot of corporate, a lot of corporate um, sponsorship for those. And we get teachers in from all over the world to go through Space Camp during the summer, of which I manage that program. We had 561 teachers go through Space Camp last summer from all over. We had 35 countries that attend, and there's lots of opportunities at Space Camp for teachers who are uh, working in the public school sector, teaching uh, middle school um, science and math. So um, they're corporately, a lot of those are corporately sponsored, and uh, teachers get full scholarships to come to Space Camp to um, to learn how to take science and math and back back to their uh, back to their classroom and work with their kids. My my questioning is more towards SciViz, but. Um how did the name SciViz come about? Uh, interesting question. Um, as, as the program became more and more uh, popular, we sort of felt like um, we needed to come up with something. You know, Space Camp for the Blind just wasn't cutting it. You know, it, it just didn't just didn't have a ring. And um, I sort of put it out there one year. It was probably back in the mid to late um, 90s. And I just asked the people who were the chaperones attending what they thought might be a, a good name for it. And um, it was a orientation and mobility instructor from Nebraska. And I can't even remember her name. And she submitted it on a piece of paper. And it was uh, Space Camp for Interested Visually Impaired Students. And she called it SciViz, sort of like sci-fi, but SciViz. And um, it just sort of stuck. And uh, Space Camp actually adopted it before we did as a, as a group, and it was sort of odd. I can remember the first time I heard it, I said, like, what are you talking about? And I said, well, that's what, that's what you call it. And I said, oh, yeah, we, that's right, we do. And uh, so it sort of got, a, got its own legs and took off, and um, we were tickled to death to have it called something. When you were a mobility teacher, how would you consult an individual to improve their mobility? When I was a, how did I improve on their skills? Yeah. No, well, I mean, that's just a matter of practice. Um, route travel, team technique, just keep repeating and repeating and um, trying to get the whole, um, try to get the student into feeling confident about their independent travel, doing their routes, teaching them their routes, teaching them their alternative routes, making sure while they're doing those routes, they're their technique, whether it's um, independent travel without a cane or with a cane is correct, and uh, just keep working with the student through the uh, curriculum until they move from, um, you know, like campus travel to uh, quiet residential travel up to small business travel and then into metropolitan travel. Um, we take, while we live in a small town of about 2,000 people, um, we, can, we can do all the way through small business but then we have to load them on a bus and take them to Washington, D.C. Um, to use the subway and uh, that, that kind of travel. Are there frustrations um, of walking the street as a person using the cane? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's got to be. I obviously can't speak to them, um, can't speak to the frustrations personally because I'm not, I'm not blind, but uh, I know the kids are often um, given poor directions 
um, they become confused and, and don't necessarily know how to how to get out of situations, which is you know a teaching moment. Um, they get people who interfere with them wanting to help, and they really don't need help. And uh, uh, there's all sorts of issues that go on there. As as the teacher who's watching the mobility and the cane work, um, and someone who doesn't whose vision is deteriorating, they have to use the cane. How do you transition from not using the cane to using the cane? Well, hopefully that's done at a young age. Um, in most in most instances, the child starts as soon as the child starts walking. There's pre-cane devices that they can use to clear their path. Uh, for children who are adventitiously blinded later in later in their life, um, it's a time to start introducing the cane as soon as possible, getting them into the concept of using it. Um, first of all, uh, that they have to clear their path. Other uh, in other instances, it's a identification to the motorist or the pedestrian that this person may have some difficulty crossing a street or become confused or whatever. So you have to sort of get them into the philosophy of why they need one. Because so many times kids who are in, especially in a residential school, know their way around and really don't see the need to even have one. But uh, you have to take them out and get them in a unfamiliar area to where they can begin seeing the need for something like that. Is America um, able to, like people in America, able to cross the road with uh, audible traffic lights? Or what improvements do you f- could see being enhanced for the the person that's sight loss to travel more freely and independently? Yeah, even in our little town of two hundred or two two thousand people, our our uh, city has stepped up in our Department of Highways has stepped up to provide auditory signaling at at lighted intersections, um, truncated dome sidewalks to alert the travelers are coming towards an intersection. Um, As our town goes through more and more upgrades of um, sidewalks and that sort of thing, those those things are included, uh, which weren't included to begin with. we have a, a, a pedestrian-activated signal now right at our campus going across to a McDonald's restaurant so the kids can have the uh, freedom to go and cross a, uh, cross a major highway um, safely with the, uh, with the light there now and uh, pedestrian-activated. And um, all over the U.S., it's, it's very, very good. Uh, when you get into cities, there's a lot of auditory signal uh, crossings, truncated domes are everywhere. Um, I was at an orientation mobility conference a couple years ago and intersections are being designed now with the uh, visually impaired traveler in mind. Other countries, um, I had the pleasure of going to Russia years ago and um, their infrastructure was right after the fall of the communist era and their infrastructure was such that I would be scared to death as a um, visually impaired traveler because their infrastructure was not such that you could allow uh, to be traveling on the sidewalk. I saw cars get frustrated with backed up in traffic who left the traffic surface and drove on the sidewalks to get to get to the next intersection to make their turns. 
um, I saw, you know, along the side of the road, there was uh, 10-foot holes just with cars in them. Um, and that's been over, that's been 20 years ago, and I'm sure that's improved vastly since then. But um, if you don't have an infrastructure uh, where it's safe for a traveler, it becomes very difficult. Dan, have you traveled to various countries and seen the, the what the mobility is like? Um, where do you think we the best place in the world for a vision impaired person to be free and independent? Oh boy, I don't know if I can answer that, Aaron. I've I've traveled a lot, but I don't know if I can answer the best place. Uh, I I don't know. We have a we have a little area here in West Virginia, um, a town called Huntington, West Virginia. And um, it is the benefactor of a grant uh, or, a, or an endowment left by um, a gentleman who died and left millions and millions of dollars to, and, uh, to help the blind. And I was once told by um, the, the, the executive director of the American Foundation for the Blind, if I had a choice of living anywhere in the United States, I would live in Huntington because they have all the money to provide services for the blind, um, you know, transportation-wise, uh, anything you need is provided pretty much. So that's that's about the only way I can address that is from what I've heard. I haven't traveled extensively, but now I've been to Ireland and Australia and England, and, um, you know, usually when I'm there, that's not what I'm looking at. Dan, if you could look back on your, your younger self and what advice would you give to improve your older self? <laughs> oh, my. That old country song, How Do I Know Then, What I Know Now. Um, that's, that's probably really good. Um, I don't know. I, I just have always, I've always felt guided by God that, that I'm in the right place doing the right thing at the right time. Um, I, I think the the choice of you know the, the decision to work in this field wasn't really anything that I had any choice over. I think it was it was guided. People ask me what was my calling, um, and I always say the the phone rang. <laughs> so that was the, that was the calling. Was, I picked up the phone and the guy said, "Would you like to come up here and work and teach arts and crafts?" And, from then on out, when I said yes, it was all just sort of happened for me. And uh, I think working with the blind and visually impaired has certainly been, I think, what God had intended me to do. It took me a while to find it. And then the whole the whole space camp thing is um, is a passion uh, for me. I just think that, and I know there's other places on the face of the earth where kids get together and achieve a common goal and. But the whole, I was, I've always been a big space fan and to see it, see those changes in kids wrap around uh, space is, is, that's very satisfying to me. Um, I don't necessarily um, have any, I mean, I, I, I think back, if I was to talk to my younger self, I'm not sure what I would say other than, you know, when, when someone knocks at the door, the phone rings, answer it. And, uh, make your decision based upon where your heart is at the time and that's about all I about all I got on that one I think Why are you so passionate about Space Camp? Well I mean there's all sorts of mushy stuff I guess you could say about that but um, 
there's a lot of self-satisfaction in seeing a kid's life change. It's, it is. And, and, you know, 211 kids come through. I probably did not assist in changing 211 lives. But, you know, there's a couple dozen kids there that had a profound experience and enjoyed it. And they went back home with a different attitude. And um, some chaperones that are reinvigorated now to go back and um, work with their kids on a different level because you see your kids in a different light there because it's a different environment. And we're asking them to do things that they haven't done before. And chaperones go, oh, yeah, I didn't know my kid couldn't do that. Or I didn't, I didn't know my kid could do that. So it, it, there is a lot of self-satisfaction in it. And it's something that's worth doing. The um, CEO at Space Camp um, spoke at graduation, and she had some kind words to say about me. And I don't like, normally don't like people saying you know, I don't need to be recognized in that way. But she explained to me probably better than I could have explained me. And she said he wakes up every morning and decides that blind and vision impaired kids are going to come to space camp. He makes it, he makes it happen for them. And uh, I sat there and I said, yeah, yeah, I guess I do. I do wake up in the morning and say, okay, this is what I got to do today to make this happen. And it's a, it's a year long process. And uh, I said, I'm not sure if anyone's ever explained it that simply to me before, but um, that's it. I wake up every morning and say, what do I got to do today to keep keep sizes moving forward? And how are we going to, where am I going to find the kids? And what do I got to do today to make it happen? Wow. Um, outside of Sivis then, if you could do the same field um, and improve or help alter a vision impaired's life, what do you think it would be? Um, if I could alter someone's life kind of, visually impaired? Kind of like something what you've, you've seen through this, the SIVIS program. Well, I mean, I, I think the most important thing for children is the self-confidence and the, um, the, the peer interaction that lets them know that they're not alone. And um, one of the other aspects of the program that I haven't mentioned is that we have a gentleman come from Marshall Space Flight Center, uh, a national facility right, right nearby Space Camp, 10 miles away that is blind and has worked at NASA his entire career. And he comes and talks to the kids about working for NASA and being blind and how he got to where he is today and, you know, what tools he uses in his office to make this work. And then we also do a phone conference with um, four or five other NASA employees that are around the U.S. and who are blind that work for NASA. So the kids get a, a, a good opportunity to talk to my mentor, uh, an adult who is blind, who works for NASA in a, in a, um, a high-tech environment. And, and while, while that experience is, is relatively important, the, the questions often turn to a more personal, um, more personal uh, question along the lines of one little girl asked one time, do you, ever, do you have any friends? And uh, that's a that's a pretty powerful question coming from a from a student to an adult because possibly that child has never talked to another blind adult before and doesn't know whether she doesn't have the confidence knowing that if she doesn't have any friends in school and how she's going to have any friends when she's an adult and I see it often in schools where the blind child is sort of goes through the day the program uh, at a school on the fringe and never really associates socially with the rest of uh, 
with the rest of the crowd. And another question we had one time, were your mother and father mad at you and they found out you were blind? And um, that, that comes from a child who's been sitting in another room and heard an argument probably between her mom and dad uh, concerning some, you know, some point in their education or some decision that needs to be made and the child hasn't interpreted it as they're mad at me for being blind. If I wasn't blind, then they wouldn't be having this discussion. So um, questions like that, uh, opportunities to you know get questions like that answered are vastly more important to me um, than how a space shuttle launches or how a person uh, eats a meal in space. Uh, if they come to space camp and find out the questions, you know, the answers to the questions about having friends and growing up blind, it's far more important than, than knowing the technology behind space travel. Who, who inspires you um, to do what you do, either what in the space camp or the SciViz program or in general? Um, the gentleman that, that was a, a, the principal at the School for the Blind is, is basically my mentor. He uh, was the one that offered me the part-time job as an arts and crafts instructor. He was the one who um, offered me my master's program um, to go back to school to become a mobility instructor. He saw something in me that I didn't have a clue about. That you know, he he knew he could tell by talking to me that there was a spark there that he felt he could invest in and make it bigger. And um, I, I've knowing that I've known that for probably 20 years. He was only at my school from 1980 um, to 1990, and then he left and moved away. But I have kept in touch with him. In fact, I saw him again this summer. And um, when we when we see each other, there's always big hugs and there's tears. And uh, other than my own father, he is. Uh, probably the most important person in my life and um, inspired me to be as good as as good I as good as I am at what I do and, and for the right reasons. He he's a, his name is Ralph Brewer. He's the retired superintendent at the Tennessee School for the Blind and he's just one of the better men on the face of the earth. And I was I've always been honored um, to have met him and he stepped into my life and he changed it one hundred and eighty degrees and uh, taught me a lot of lessons along the way. If there was one little piece of advice or experience or story that uh, sticks in your mind that you want to share to us, what would it be, Dan? Mm. Wow. I love stories. <laughs> <laughs> I just can't, I just can't come up with, uh, I, I just can't come up with one. Um, there, there was a, there was a story about a, a young man that went to space camp with us the first time and was one of my favorite students, um, his name was Ricky, totally blind, cane traveler, and Ricky and I were very good friends uh, and still are today. But um, went to the uh, back here in the states when you're a, a, after in your grade twelve year when you're a senior, you used to go on trips with the seniors and we could take them. They raised money for four years and then off we'd go. We went to the beach down in North Carolina, and um, we were. We were standing on the beach there, and the ocean was in front of us, and it was the first time Ricky had ever experienced the ocean, being a, a small town, uh, West Virginia boy, growing up back in the hills of West Virginia. And 
he was standing there, and he was on the swim team, so he was a good swimmer. And uh, we were getting ready to walk into the ocean, sighted God, and he said, uh, can, you, can you take me out to the deep end? Um, referring to the ocean as a pool. And I started chuckled, and I said, Ricky, you don't want to go to the deep end, because that's, that's pretty deep. And it struck me is, is that there was, a, there was a child who grew up blind, um, had all the uh, services available to him by the educational system. Uh, he was an independent traveler. He traveled independently in the subway in Washington, D.C., uh, very skilled, high academic kid, Went on to become a piano tuner, a professional piano tuner, uh, perfect pitch, had all these skills lined up, yet never picked up along the way that the ocean was different than a swimming pool. And um, I, I, always, I always felt like, why, where along his educational path did he not get that little, I always call them chips, that little chip of information stuck into his head that that a, that the ocean was not a pool and there was not a deep end and a shallow end. And uh, of all the things he knew and all the things he could accomplish as an individual, that was one little chip of information that he didn't get. And it often concerns me that when I used to teach, you know, I had to make sure the kid got all the chips put in the pot so uh, they would have all the information. And, Ran into the same thing years later with a, a, a lady who was blind uh, from birth, who was a PhD, highly educated, highly intelligent. I was sitting uh, at a table um, at a banquet, and we were talking about applesauce and how the applesauce um, resembled the color of what a baby puts in its diaper <laughs> and how it was that color of brown. And the lady said, well, well, no, applesauce is not brown, it's red. And I said, no, no. I said, an apple, applesauce can be like a pale yellow or a brown, depending on the amount of cinnamon you put in. No, 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 apples are red, applesauce is red. And I, I went, well, no. I said, apples are red on the outside or yellow on the outside, but the interior away from the skin is a white, an off-white color. And she said, really? He says, I never knew that. And, and I thought, well, you know, there's another chip that there's a lady, highly educated PhD, in the whole scheme of things, it's probably not something she needed to know. But I'm always mystified at what, what people who are blind can do. I mean, because they can do about anything. But then there's these little chips that uh, don't get inserted into the pot. And uh, it's interesting to just to find out what they are. I've always thought that would be a cool book if I ever had enough of them that I could add in. Uh, excellent. Dan, for 2016 and 2017, do you have anything exciting or new coming up for you? Uh, not really. Um, retirement is as best as I can, I can have. I'm in a, a period now where I have a couple months where I don't have to do too much. So um, it's very relaxing to be at home. And um, um you know, working on Sideways 2017, be our 20, uh, 29th year or 20, 28th year, 28, 29, I've lost count, something like that. And um, we will uh, be working towards that, trying to get the word out internationally that we can, and uh, we have scholarships available for more students 
Um, always interested in new countries. If you're from a country that hasn't been before, I always enjoy um, new cultures and getting students in from those from those countries. So um, that's probably going to, I mean, now once again, be my focus for the year is getting things worked out. I, I see. And where can we find SciViz um, if people want to sign up for it? Well, um, registration will be uh, probably February, March, um, and, and maybe even as late as April. Uh, scholarship applications uh, for all of our scholarship programs will be um, available on the website at the Texas School for the Blind. And um, that's, if I give you the, usually if I tell you the web address, that becomes difficult to understand. So just Google the Texas School for the Blind and on the left side, as you scroll down through the links, you'll see us, you'll see SciBiz there and um, click on that and you're off on our page and then we'll have the applications up for all the scholarships here after the first of the year. And we'd like to select those um, March, April, so we can give everybody ample time to get their visas and their passports. Fantastic, Dan. I want to say thank you very much for coming onto the show and sharing your stories, experiences, knowledge, and what SciBiz is and, is and does. Okay, well, it's been a pleasure. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.